stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? He answered, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? He said, that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence, and that you love your neighbour as well as you do yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Do it and you'll live. Looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how would you define neighbour? Jesus answered by telling a story. There was once a man travelling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite religious man showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan, travelling along the road, came upon him. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill, and I'll pay you on my way back. What do you think? Which of the three became a neighbour to the man attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly, the religious scholar responded. Jesus said, go and do the same. Of course, this is such a familiar story, you probably don't think I need to preach on it at all. Um, But when we were looking through parables to preach from, we each chose our own. And so the ones that I preached on, I chose to preach but because something struck me about them, which I hadn't noticed before, and in quite a few of them, something which shocked me, because I hadn't noticed it. The thing that struck me about the parable of the Good Samaritan is the interaction of Jesus with the man who asked the question. The parable wouldn't be in our scripture if a teacher of the law hadn't approached Jesus and asked him the question which we heard read to us. The man was a scribe. He was taught and learned in the Jewish law. He himself was a teacher of the law. In our terms, we would say, He'd been ordained to it. He was official, formal, professional. And Jesus, of course, was this character from Nazareth with no formal training, who was going around teaching everybody about God and doing extraordinary things. And so the Greek tells us that this teacher stood up and asked Jesus a question to test him. The Greek word is the same word used for tempt. 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do, life, and inherit. In the student-teacher system of that time, the teacher used to sit, the student would stand when he engaged with the teacher or ask a question, the teacher would stand, the student would stand out of respect. When we read this, we see that this scholar stood seemingly out of respect but with a devious intention of testing Jesus. This is the scenario. Interestingly, Jesus treats the teacher with more respect than we believe the teacher was treating Jesus. Because Jesus says to him, well, what do you say? How do you read it? You're a scribe. How do you see it? Well, he says, we love God with all our being and that we love our neighbour as ourselves. And Jesus turns to the teacher and respects him and says, it's a good answer. That's right. Go and do it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you're right. You know it. Go and do it. We then have Luke's words saying to justify himself. Now from our perspective we would see that, we'll return to this word in a moment later on, but from our perspective we can understand here's a man who stood up to test this vagrant teacher and in a way he's been embarrassed by it. And so we say, well, he needs to justify himself. He's now feeling publicly embarrassed. And so he said, okay, but then who is my neighbour? And that's when we get the story that we know as the Good Samaritan. You probably could speak the story off by heart, too. At the end of the story, Jesus again says, to the scribe. Which of these three men, after a man has been left naked and bleeding and robbed and injured, which of these three men who came by, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, became a neighbour to the man? The wording is significant. Not was a neighbour, but became a neighbour to this man. How do you say? And because in the scribal understanding it was right to love your neighbour, but their tradition and their theology excluded Gentiles and Samaritans from that, the scribe didn't want to say it was a Samaritan who became a neighbour. He just said, oh, the one I suppose who showed him mercy. 
And once again, Jesus says to him, you have answered right. Go and do it. Now it's very easy to cavil with the word of God. We've all done it. We've all read the word of God selectively. And we've always come up, all come up with questions to our ministers or our teachers or to God, saying, God, why is this there? Or how am I supposed to interpret this when we've got our own ideas? But when you've read it, do you know it? The simple thing that Jesus said to this man was, well, go and do it. Go and do it. Uh, this challenges me. Um, because there are times when I'm convicted that I didn't do it, though I knew it. And it's very easy to find excuses. My folk theology, the latest book I've read, which has questioned the things I've always taken for granted. So easy to make excuses. But Jesus just said to this man, go and do it. And at the beginning, I didn't know Pete was going to use it. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Listen. So very simply, between you and God, what you know, are you doing it? But there's more to this parable just that. I have a book here which um, I would recommend. It's not in every way easy reading. It's a guy called Kenneth E. Bailey. And this is Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. It's a man who has lived and ministered in the Middle East for 40 years and knows the customs and the village ways. Many of which, he says, are very similar to the days of Jesus because places are so isolated customs carry on through generations. He's helped me. That to those who are hearing the parable as Jesus spoke it, there are things which we don't see because we're Brits, or whatever we are, in the 21st century. First of all, there's geography, and then there's language and dress, which all would have played a part in the way people understood this parable. So, first of all, the geography. Jericho is geographically the lowest city on earth. Several hundred metres below sea level. Jerusalem, on the other hand, is high in the Judean hills, high in the hills, and it's a couple of thousand metres above sea level, which I think that makes it about two kilometres, doesn't it? If I've worked it out right. That is quite a journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. And many of the priests that worked in Jerusalem lived at that time in Jericho. It's a very salubrious place with many waters and springs and palm trees and fruit farms. 
And at the time of the second temple, so we're told, which is the time we're talking about, the priests were amongst the wealthy class. So this is quite a journey up to minister in the temple and then few back home downhill. We're told that the man on the journey was robbed violently by robbers. Not an unknown thing in those days. It's, um, it's a wilderness path. In fact, there's a part on this path this road between Jerusalem and Jericho, which is actually known as the Valley of the Shadow of Death. It's a dangerous road. And many times people were mugged. And this man, we're told, was mugged violently. Now I'm quoting this man directly. Then... As now, various ethnic communities in the Middle East are identified by their clothes, by their language, by their accent. In the first century, Jewish scholars could speak Hebrew, the peasants spoke Aramaic. Along the Phoenician coast, people still used the Phoenician language. Around the Sea of Galilee, Syriac was in use. The Greek cities naturally conversed in Greek. The tribesmen in the south spoke in Arabic. Government officials would have known Latin. Language, dress and accent. With these three ethnic and class markers, it was easy to distinguish them from us. But this man has been stripped naked and he's half dead. He can't speak. You don't know his language or his accent. And you cannot tell from his clothes what ethnicity he is. Or what geographical region he's come from. And he's lying in the road, bleeding, half dead. We're told that a priest comes down. The Greek word is comes down. He's been in Jerusalem. He's on his way home. He's been serving presumably in the temple. And he comes to this man. But if he was a Jew, perhaps he might help him. The Jewish law tells him that he should help his brother Jew. But he can't tell this man's ethnicity or where he comes from. If he if he helps a Gentile, then he defiles himself. If he helps him at all, he's liable to defile himself. He'll have to go back up to Jerusalem for a whole week's worth of purification rituals. He won't be able to eat the tithe food anymore. He's had a busy two weeks on duty. And now he's on his way home. He can't tell what this man is. The law overrules compassion. If he touches the man and the man dies, then he will have to rend his clothes according to the law. And that would be destroying something which is sacred, the clothing of the priest. He passes by on the other side. Then comes a Levite 
There are three classes of people who helped in the temple worship. There was the priest, there was the Levite, who was the assistant to the priest, and there were the layman. The Levite comes next. Perhaps, says this man, it would be assumed that the Levite had the priest in sight. Priest, helper. The priest is the one who interprets the law and he is determined to pass by. I can't stop and help this man. How can I turn up in town with this man when the priest has passed him by? Do I know more than the priest? Can I disrespect the priest? Or did he just have the same kind of thoughts that the priest had? But he passed by on the other side. And now we come to the Samaritan. The priest saw the man pass by. The Levites saw him pass by. The Samaritans saw him. And Jesus says, was filled with compassion. It's this unique word which we find in the Gospels for compassion. It means bowels of mercy. I've said this before. It's that deep feeling which comes from deep inside you and comes up and wells out this feeling on behalf of someone else. The Samaritan feels this. He stops Stoops, he doesn't worry about his own purity. They have laws in Samaria which are not so dissimilar from the Pentateuchal laws that the, the Jews believe. They have serious dif differences about geographies and, and, and prophets and things. But he's not thinking about his own purity here. Compassion pours out to this man. He chooses to become a neighbour to this man. He binds him. He pours oil into him. He puts him on his own riding donkey and walks beside him, leading him down to an inn. Now, archaeological evidence dating back to that time suggests there were no inns before you got to Jericho. So we have a despised Samaritan choosing at great pain to himself and possible danger to his life and limb to go into Jericho with one whom we assume is a wounded and dying Jew takes him into an inn and cares for him all night and then leaves money for his support when he leaves. Putting the story into an American context around 1850. Suppose a Native American found a cowboy with two arrows in his back placed the cowboy on his horse and rode into Dodge City. 
After checking into a room over the saloon, the man spent the night taking care of the cowboy. How would the people of Dodge City react to the Native American the following morning when he emerged from the saloon? Americans know that they would probably kill him, even though he helped the cowboy. This writer, having lived in the Middle East for 40 years, says he's encountered situations like that in various places. This Samaritan didn't just go the extra mile. This Samaritan went deep into territory which could have cost him severely to help this man. Now the hearers of the parable when it was told would understand these things. It would be as second nature to them. Now says Jesus in your view who do you think became the neighbour to this man? Well the one I suppose that showed him mercy you go and do that said Jesus now the parable is powerful just for what we've said (coughs) but there may be something else in it as well Remember back in the beginning the way the scribe asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do this and you will live. But also remember that Luke, the writer, travelled a lot with Paul. So we come back to this little phrase, but wishing to justify himself. Did Luke, could Luke, have had a theological reason for couching it in those terms. Can we live so as to justify ourselves before God and as a consequence of our lives inherit eternal life? Certainly the law says so. The law says if we do all these things we shall live. There is nothing wrong with the law. The law is correct. It's God's law. It's God God saying this is the way to be and to live. And we see it demonstrated perfectly in human condition in the Lord Jesus Christ who came to fulfil the law and did. That's what it looks like. 
And we see that Jesus in his teaching exemplifies the law. Time and time again. You understand this? This is what it is to love God, to be a neighbour. Go and do it. We see it in his Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said that thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, don't be angry with your brother. Take it deep into the innermost being. Don't just look at the outer words. Take it deep. Fulfill the law in its most minute point. Murder. Make <coughs> anger. Don't be angry with one another. <coughs> the scripture also gives us permission to be angry, by the way. But we're not to sin in our anger. So Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, says many times, you have heard that it is written, but I say to you, you've heard that it's written this, but I say to you, Jesus always affirms the law and says, live this in its minutest form, in your whole, your whole being. And so you will live, whoever keeps the whole law will live. But we have this conundrum. Jesus is constantly saying in his other teaching, I came to seek and to save the lost. I didn't come for the righteous. If the man is righteous and he lives by the whole law, he doesn't need Jesus, does he? So this is the law, live by it. Be honourable. But Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Probably one of the reasons this teacher came to see him in the first place because he was appalled by the way Jesus was surrounded by publicans and sinners and welcomed them and socialised with them over meals and things. The sinful hoi polloi. Jesus came as a saviour. And there are some ancient writers in the Middle East who suspect that Jesus was modelling the Good Samaritan in his own ministry. That in this parable we have a picture actually of Jesus, the outsider who comes alongside and saves those that the people legalised and won't touch. Truth is, we can't keep the law. Or we haven't, put it that way. We don't like the word sin these days, but I'm very sorry, I'm going to use it. And if you don't ever want to listen to me again, that's down to you. For the Bible says you, me, all of us have sinned. And we have come short of the glory of God. We know what it is right to do. And for all our best attempts and honest endeavour, we've failed. 
thing that, one of the things that brought me to Christ in the first place was not particularly that I loved this book. I didn't know a great deal about it. But I did have an ideal which I kind of grabbed out of the air about Jesus, that he was a good bloke. And I wanted to be a good bloke like Jesus. I thought that it might be possible to be a Christian. The problem was, I couldn't even keep my own rules, let alone God's. And I was constantly failing to the point where guilt was a deep, deep thing inside me which led to my anger and my outbursts and my furies and my cynicism and all kinds of things. For all our best intentions and honest endeavour, we've sinned and we come short of the glory of God. And Paul later wrote, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal isn't based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Jesus said to the scribe, okay, go and do it. Because it was the right answer. But if the scribe was seriously trying to do it, then he would be constantly annoyed with himself and upset and repentant and coming back to God and saying I've failed again I'm sorry I'm sorry because a man that's serious about righteousness or a woman serious about it would do that and actually We have a saviour who is the life, the way, the truth, who is the life. The extraordinary thing about Jesus is that the life of God flowed out through him so that he could revive the dead. He could turn back disease and heal people. And the end of Jesus' ministry, fulfilling the law, living as this scribe would expect a man to live, was that he was crucified for it. Because they couldn't hack it. But when he was crucified for it, he made his own soul an offering for sinners. He fulfilled the prophets, Isaiah. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Christ consciously went to the cross understanding that the suffering was the suffering for this scribe and for you and me. And he made a vicarious standing in our place sacrifice. Taking the rap that should have been ours. Was crucified for our sins. And on the cross before he died he had this triumphant shout. It's finished. It's settled. The Greek word is tetelestai. It is finished. I'm told that when a prisoner had served his sentence, tetelestai was a sign that was put over the place where he'd been imprisoned. I don't know if that's true. But for you and me, because of what Jesus did, the, the judgment is finished. And we are welcomed through faith, and we are actually incredibly, one might almost say stupidly, riskily by God, credited. With the righteousness that was Christ's. And so we're made acceptable. And because of the love of God which is now poured into us. Out of our gratitude we have a new attitude to loving our neighbours ourselves. <coughs> and loving God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. It's now not so that I may earn my way to heaven. Because Christ has earned that and granted it to you and me through faith. But we obey him out of love because we're passionate about him. And when we do get it wrong, we know there's a saviour who being raised from the dead still gives life and is an advocate before the Father for us. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, there are two ways you can go. You can keep the whole law without sinning. Or you can bow the knee to a crucified and risen Saviour. So I can't do this. I tried to do this. I wanted to do this. I love you. I meant to do this, but I can't. Rescue me from this. Life giver put new life into my soul. Sustain me with your spirit. Cause your word to live within me. I will serve you. 
but I will come to you daily. God, I do love you.